several verses of Scripture to you, uh, verses 1 through verse number 9 this morning, and I'll give you some review, and then we're going to center in on verse number 9 uh, this morning. The Bible says in Ezra chapter number 9 and verse number 1, Now when these things were done, the princes came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and the rulers have been chief in this trespass. And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head, and of my beard, and set down a stony. Then when a, then were assembled unto me every one uh, that trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I set a stony until the evening sacrifice. And at evening sacrifice I arose from my heaviness, and having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God. And said, O my God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift up my face to Thee, my God. For our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespass is grown up unto the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day. And for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hands of the kings of the lands to spoil to the cat to the sword uh, to the cat excuse me to the sword to the captivity and to the spoil and to the confusion of face as it is this day and now for a little space grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape to give us a nail in his holy place that God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage this is my text this morning for we were bondmen Yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving, to set up the house of our God and repair the desolations thereof and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. The book of Ezra gives us an account of the first remnant of Jews that returned to their homeland from the Babylonian captivity. Studying history, we know that in 538 B.C., Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, conquered Babylon, and he issued a, a decree that allowed the exiled Jews to return back to their homeland for the purpose of rebuilding the temple and restarting their lives. Ezra was a scribe. He was a man that dealt with the Torah, with the law of God, with the Scriptures. He is a man, just as God used Nehemiah to rebuild the walls in the book of Nehemiah, God used Ezra to reinstitute worship here in the book of Ezra. But within the context of Ezra 9, there is a problem. We note the sin in verse 1 and 2. And the sin of the text is that God's people uh, were mingling with the world. Uh, we mentioned on Wednesday night uh, that these uh, the Jews were not to marry uh, those Gentiles unless the Gentiles had fully rec recanted their gods, their idolatry, uh, because the Lord 
knew uh, that if the, the God's people married the heathen, that the heathen would turn God's people and not the other way around. We understand that it was a it was a religious issue. It was an issue with idolatry. And they were mixing with the world. They were in love with the world. And are we not seeing that in the day and age we're living in? How, how people that are saved, uh, they are infatuated with the world. They have an affection for the world. I'm reminded of what Paul said about Demas. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. How about you this morning? But I don't want to be in love with the world. Amen. The love, the world has never done anything for me. Uh, John admonished us in the book of 1 John. I love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The world's never done anything for you, uh, but Jesus has done something for you. Amen. And so they were involved. They weren't separated from the world. And this led to sorrow in verse 3 and 4. Ezra's heart was filled with sorrow and sadness. He was disturbed over the fact that God had done so much for Israel. God had done so much for these people. God had been so merciful to these people. But yet they had went back to the world. They went back to mingling with the same sins that got them into Babylonian captivity to start with. And that led to his supplication in verses 5 through 15. The burden of of Ezra's heart in this prayer, in this supplication. In verses 5 through 15, he has a theme. And that theme is what the Lord's put in my heart to preach in these days. I'm preaching on the thought, taking the mercy of God for granted. Taking the mercy of God for granted. We understand that mercy is God withholding judgment of that we do deserve. It is us not getting what we do deserve. And I want to remind you this morning that all of us this morning are recipients of the mercy of God. We deserve to be in hell lost for eternity. Oh, we deserve uh, to be uh, damned to the lake of fire for all eternity. Oh, but aren't you glad God, who is rich in mercy, for with His great love, He loved us. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord for His mercy endureth forever. In Psalm 136, 28 times, in 28 verses, uh, you'll find that little phrase, uh, for His mercy endureth forever. You know why it says it 28 times in 28 verses? You know why it says, For His mercy endureth forever? Because His mercy endureth forever. Thank God His mercies are new every morning. Uh, Lamentations, Jeremiah said, uh, They are new every morning. And great is thy faithfulness. Oh, but how many times uh, does God bail us out of a situation? How many times does God uh, forgive us and help us and pick us up again only for us to go right back to that sin. Only for us to go right back down that direction. You know what we're doing? We're taking the mercy of God for granted. Taking the mercy of God for granted. I don't want to be guilty of that sin. I am guilty of that sin. But I don't want to live that way. I don't want to take God's mercy for granted. I want to have an appreciation in my heart. I want to have a thanksgiving in my heart. Nobody deserves mercy. You knew that, right? Nobody deserves mercy. But God gave us mercy and then He gave us grace. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Oh, but grace is getting what we do not deserve. Or don't we have a great God this morning? Or don't we have a wonderful Savior that doesn't give us what we do deserve? And He gives us what we don't deserve? I don't want to take that for granted. So if I'm not going to take the mercy of God for granted, I preach Wednesday night and we must reflect on God's mercy. 
We preached Wednesday night, verses 5 through 7, the sinful rebellion. I won't preach all that again. But then we talked about the sovereign retribution, how God punished His people. God led them in captivity. And then we noticed, we noticed the, the, the special remnant, how God brought a group back. And now for a little space, grace had been showed to us. And then we closed with that spiritual revival. He said, you gave us a little reviving in our bondage. Thank God for that. I'll tell you, if we don't want to take the mercy of God for granted this morning, we better reflect on God's mercy. We better remember what we was, where we was, what we was involved in, where we was headed, and what we was doing. Oh, but God had mercy. We need to reflect on God's mercy. But this morning, the second part of this, I believe if we're not going to take the mercy of God for granted, not only must we, must we reflect on God's mercy, but we need to rejoice in God's mercy. Look at verse number 9. I preached in this verse this morning. For we were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended, uh-oh, there it is, mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving, to set up the house of our God and repair the desolations thereof and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. You know what he's doing in verse number 9? Ezra is not only reflecting on the mercy of God, but he is rejoicing in the mercy of God. There are three things in this verse I want to emphasize before we go today. First of all, I want us to know the admitted fault. The admitted fault. The admonition of fault in verse number 9. He says, For we were bondmen. He said we were bondmen. We were in captivity. I thought about two things in this admitting their fault. By the way, we'll never get any help from God until we admit that it's our fault. Uh, We're good at pointing fingers and blaming everybody else for the problem. But Ezra said we were bondmen. It is our fault. It's not God's fault. It's not anybody else's fault. It is our fault. There's two things in this admonition of fault. First of all, there is the reason for their bondage. Why was God's people in Babylonian captivity? There's three quick things. I'll run through them quickly and emphasize them. And then we'll go, first of all, because of idolatry. Over and over again, as you read Kings and Chronicles, you'll find that God's people were bowing down before false gods. They were worshiping false idols. They were building groves. They were building altars and sacrificing the false gods. They were guilty of breaking the commandment that God gave them in Exodus chapter number 20, verses 2 through 6. When he said, Thou shalt have no other God before me. Thou shalt not make any graven image or likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water or under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. But what did God's people do? They disregarded that commandment. They disregarded that. In fact, in Exodus chapter number 32, uh, Moses up there on that mountain. Y'all mind if I preach a little bit, alright? Moses up there on that mountain getting the law from God. And what are they doing down there in the valley? Oh, they go to Aaron and said, we don't want anything to become a Moses. Up, make us gods. And so Aaron being the backbone, lily-livered man he was, uh, he got their earrings and their gold and he, he put it in the fire and he fashioned it into a cow. 
calf and brought that calf out and said, These be thy gods, O Israel. And they begin to worship that calf. That calf hadn't done anything for them. Oh, that calf hadn't heard their prayers in Egypt. Oh, that calf hadn't got them out of Egypt. But ain't it quick how, ain't it amazing how quick we are oh, to forget the God who has done so much for us, who has answered so many prayers for us, who has done so much for us. We become guilty of idolatry. One writer said, whatever you make the most of in your life is your God. Did you get a hold of that? Whatever we make the most of in our life is our God. Amen. Layman Strauss said, idolatry is anything that regulates God into the background. Anything that is more more important in our life than God Himself is a God. Little G-O-D. Idolatry got him in this mess. Immorality got him in this mess. You know, with bad doctrine goes bad morals. Every single time. I'm going to tell you something. You listen to your preacher this morning. You watch these boys that have gone apostate and changed their doctrine. Casting out devils. One of them's already been committing adultery and married a secretary. Greg Locke put her on a bus and married a secretary. Wasn't that amazing how that all worked out? So bad doctrine leads to bad morals. He's a whoremonger, an adulterer, and a fornicator. And I'm going to tell you, when you have bad doctrine, it leads to bad, to bad morals. They go hand in hand. That's exactly what happened to God's people in our text. They, they got immoral, they got an idolatry and they became immoral. It always goes together. You know what doctrine is? Doctrine is the basis of truth. Thy word is truth. So when we go away from this book, we're going to be headed for immorality. Here's how I know that the psalmist said, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Psalm 119.11 Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Why are God's people in bondage? Because of idolatry. Because of immorality. But then because of insolence. Webster defines the word insolence as pride or haughtiness manifested in contemptuous, overbearing treatment of others. In other words, I don't care what you say. I don't care what you think. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to go where I want to go. I'm going to act like I want to act. In fact, in 2 Chronicles chapter number 36, the Bible said on the Lord, God of their fathers sent to them by His messengers rising up be times and sending because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But watch what they did to these preachers that God sent. But they mocked the messengers of God and they despised His words and misused His prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people till there was no remedy. They mocked the messengers. That word mock means to joke or to jest. They didn't take God's message seriously. They didn't take God's men seriously and there's a lot of that, that goes on today but there's a lot of men uh, that claim to be preachers uh, they don't carry themselves like a preacher uh, they'll get in the pulpit with shorts and flip flops and Bermudas and they'll just say ain't God cool with all y'all I mean he gets us whatever that means I'm getting tired of reading that at ball games somebody help me and and, and all this stuff uh, they don't deserve to be respected amen they don't deserve to be revered as a man of God but I tell you there are men that God sent to Israel uh, that preach and warned God's people and they mocked them and they despised them and they rejected the message and that still goes on today. Uh, but then they maligned His words. The Bible said they despised His words. I'm talking about why they're in bondage. Because they despised. They didn't want to hear what the Lord said. 
We could build this church to 300 people if you just quit preaching the Bible. Start showing movies, amen. Start handing out popcorn, let people drink coffee in the church and treat it like Starbucks or five bucks, whatever you want to call it, and treat it like that. You can build a church real quick doing that. Oh, but when you preach the Bible verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept, as men are is what the Bible says, people don't want that anymore. But may I remind you, Jesus' crowd got smaller oh, the closer He got to the cross. I'll tell you, boy, He had a big old crowd that day on the Sea of Galilee. 20,000 people. Oh, but when He came down to the day, He just had a few women and one faithful preacher still standing by. Oh, but thank God for that faithful few that stayed faithful right to the very end. But they didn't want to hear the Word of the Lord. And then they misused His prophets. It means to maltreat. They didn't treat God's men with honor and respect. And notice what happened because of that. The Bible said, "...to the wrath of the Lord arose against His people till there was no remedy." You know, you can get to a point that's so bad where God can't even help you. Israel did. Israel, there was no remedy for him. The reason, don't worry, the first point is, the second two points are not as long as the first point, alright? Uh, there's the, re- the reason, but then there's the results of their bondage. What happened when they got in bondage? Captivity. No liberty. Can't go where they want to go. And amazing that prodigal son. You know why he wanted to leave daddy, brother David? He wanted freedom. He wanted to do what he wanted to do. But he gets down there in the far country and has to join himself to a citizen of that country and now he's under his authority. I'm going to tell you, you're always going to be under somebody's authority. And I'd a whole lot rather be under somebody's authority that loves me and has their best in, has my best interests in mind other than be a slave and be, a, be under the taskmasters of this world. Amen. Captivity. Their children suffered. You know that's how Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael ended up in Babylon? You know, that's how they end up because mom and dad rebelled against God. Because mom and dad uh, rebelled against God and went the wrong way. And their children suffered for it. Their children suffered for it. Children, captivity. But then I thought about this. Because their church suffered. You read 2 Chronicles 36. The Bible said in verse number 18, And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasure of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burnt the house of God, and break down the walls of Jerusalem. They destroyed, the, they destroyed the temple because God's people rebelled and wouldn't respond to the message. Compromise. And according to Jeremiah 52.30, 4,600 people Nebuchadnezzar took to Babylon and only four stood. Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, only four stood in Babylon out of 4,600 people. You know what the rest of them did? The rest of them bowed. The rest of them compromised and just went along with the world. There is a cost for rebelling against God. There is the admitted fault for we were bondmen. But I love the rest of my text. There's the Almighty's faithfulness. For we were bondmen. Oh, don't miss this. The blessing of this text is found in the little word yet. Yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage. That word yet means nevertheless. It means however. It means still or remaining the same. In other words, they were not faithful, but He was. They did not do right, but He did right. They did not love Him like they should have, but He loved them like He always had. Ezra's praying in this text that God, we were bondmen. We rebelled against You. But You didn't forsake us. You didn't turn Your back on us. You didn't walk away from us. Thank God if we believe not, yet He abideth faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. 
God was faithful to His precept. He declared judgment would come, and it came. His Word was true. I'm talking about not taking God's mercy for granted. I tell you, that's God's mercy, the fact oh, that He would be faithful to us. Oh, that He would be kind to us in our rebellion, in our repulsiveness, in our wickedness. Oh, God's still faithful, and God's still good, and He was faithful to His precept. But then the text goes on. He has not forsaken us in our bondage. He was faithful to His precept, and He was faithful to His people. Amen. And aren't you glad that He is a faithful God to us, and He is faithful to His people. Amen. Man, faithful to His people. Even when they wasn't faithful. Even when they wasn't doing right, God was still doing right. Even when they oh, were not loving the Lord right, He was still loving them. Amen? The Almighty's faithfulness. He said, you ain't forsaken us. You haven't turned your back on us. Why would I want to take God's mercy for granted? When I've been, By the way, we've been just as guilty as Israel was. Amen. How many times we say, well, I know, that's, I know that's what the Bible says, but I know how I feel. Or I know that's what the preacher said, but that's how I feel. No, I'm telling you this morning, we've all been uh, guilty of those things. But God's faithful, is He not? God's faithful. I notice the admitted fault. The Almighty's faithfulness. But here's the third thing in the verse. I told you the second two points wasn't as long as the first point. And all God's people said amen to that. Amen. Let him go to sleep, Daxon. Amen. Not only notice the, the admitted fault, the Almighty's faithfulness, but then I want you to notice, last of all, the abundant favor. Look at verse number 9. Listen up, boys. But hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of our kings, on the sight of the kings of Persia, to give us a reviving, to set up the house of the Lord. Somebody said... What is in this text? Well, there's, there's three things in this text and we're done. First of all, there is affection in this verse. But hath extended mercy unto us. That word extended, the word picture is that as a hand reaching out. He said, I'm going to tell you how God gave us mercy. He reached out. Now, as far as I can tell, they ain't reaching out. But He was reaching out. He hath extended mercy unto us. There's the affection, but then there's the allowance. In the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving. As I mentioned a few moments ago, mentioned it Wednesday night, 150 years before Cyrus was born, in Isaiah chapter 44, God declared that Cyrus would be born. He named him and declared that he would be the one that God would use to allow the Jews to go back to their homeland. You know what God's doing? God is allowing a wicked man, a man who who is probably not a born-again Christian in our mindset. Oh, but God is using men. God is arranging things. Why? Because He is a sovereign God. By the way, I don't, I'm not going to let a Calvinist scare me away from the fact that God is in control and God is powerful. Yes, man's responsible. Yes, man has a free will. But I'm glad God is the Lord and God is in charge. God doesn't control man's free will. Amen. But God knows the end from the beginning. Somebody said, explain that. If I could explain God, He wouldn't be God. You have to take it by faith. There's the affection, the allowance. But then, I, I preached all morning to get to this. There's the amazement. To set up the house of our God and repair the desolations thereof and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. God did for th- some things for His people in the rebuilding of this temple that are simply amazing. You see, 
When they got back to Jerusalem, Brother Charles, not everybody was glad they was building that temple. You see, and I've got a pretty outline, but I ain't going to waste time giving you the points. Y'all don't care about the points. That's just a preacher thing, all right? It's just good for the books, Miss Linda. Amen. But they get back in Ezra chapter number 4, and they're going to start building that temple. They lay the foundation in Ezra chapter 3. Remember, that's when the old men wept and the young men shouted. They get that foundation laid, and the Samaritans and the north, people from the north come down in Ezra 4 and said, Hey, we want to help you. We want to build the temple with you. The only problem is, they wasn't committed to Jehovah. They still had idolatry. And Zerubbabel, the priest, looks at them and says, You have no part with us. You're not, uh, boy, ain't the, there's a sermon right there. He said, I ain't going to ask people that are half in and half out to help me build the church. Somebody help me right there. Amen. That's why we don't have people in here that don't preach the King James Bible. We don't allow them to preach. Amen. I'm not having somebody... They might be a good person morally, but they're half in, half out. Somebody help me. Amen. Uh, we're, we're, we're not going that direction. The rebels say, you don't have no part with us. You know, they, they got mad. And they begin to start a campaign. Ain't this real childish? They said, well, if you ain't going to let us help, we're going to try to stop you. And they wrote letters to Darius and to all those leaders trying to stop the Jews from rebuilding that temple. Anytime you start to do something for God, there's going to be opposition. I encourage you to read Ezra 4, 5, and 6. And in fact, they were successful at the end of Ezra chapter 4. The Bible said the work ceased. They, they, were, they stopped building the temple. It's God's will for the temple to be built, but now it's stopped. So what did God's people do? They begin to pray and they begin to petition Darius for some help. So Darius, I love this now, only God had to write the Bible. In, in, in Ezra chapter number 6, verses 1 through 5, you've got to read this when you get home. But Darius the king went, made a decree, and they went to the, the house of rolls. That's not talking about rolls that you eat with honey butter. Somebody say amen. Even though that would be a great name for a restaurant. Somebody help me right there, alright? But where the treasures were laid up in Babylon... And there was found at Actimony, the palace in the province, a roll. And this was there, the record was written. In the first year of Cyrus king, the king Cyrus made a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. And he found this record where Cyrus said, Let the house be builded, the place where the offered sacrifices, let the foundations thereof be strongly laid, the height thereof and the core of it. He said, Let them build that. Darius reads that record. So Darius writes him a record. He writes him a decree to send back to those Jews. And you got to keep up, all right? So you got these people, they've wrote letters saying, Stop. God's people write to Darius. You know that mail service had to be busy. They write, they wasn't texting back and forth. Somebody help me, man. And they write back, and Darius finds the decree of Cyrus that, yes, they're supposed to build. Well, Darius has to follow Cyrus' decree because Cyrus has defeated Babylon, he's under his authority. So here's what Cyrus, here's what Darius does. Verse number 6 of Ezra 6. Now therefore, Tatnai the governor beyond the river, Shalzah Bazana of the companions of Aprahites, which are beyond the river, be ye far from thence. Let the work of this house of God alone. He, Darius said, leave him alone. Leave that church alone. 
Leave that temple alone. Watch this down. The elders of the Jews build a house and order in this place. Watch what he says in verse 8. Moreover, I make a decree what you shall do to the elders of these Jews for the building of the house of God of the king's goods, even of the tributes beyond the river. Forthwith the expenses be given to these men that they be not hindered. You read the rest of Ezra 6. Here's what, here's what Darius is saying. Darius, the king of Babylon. Darius, the bad guy. Darius who has held God's people captive. He said, here's what we're going to do. Not only am I telling you to leave them alone, but we're going to finance this project. We're going to send money over there. We're going to send the animals over there. We're going to pay for you to rebuild uh, this temple. That's what Ezra is rejoicing about in Ezra 9. 9. He said, God, you extended favor. You done what nobody else could do. We're rebuilding the temple that the Babylonians tore down with Babylonian money. Amen. God is making the world pay for what they tore down. Only God could do something like that. So I said, why would Darius do that? Why would Darius make that decree? Well, you remember Darius, don't you? Darius, that fellow, then they come to one day and say, oh, Darius, we like you and we think you're great. In fact, we make this law that nobody can pray but to you for 30 days. Darius said, sounds good to me. Well, they begin to enforce that law, and Daniel opened up his window three times a day and prayed toward Jerusalem. And they put Daniel, Darius put Daniel in that den of lions. And Darius stayed awake all night. Oh, but when the morning came and when the sun came up, Darius went to that den of lions and he, and then, and, and he found that Daniel was alive and that God had shut the lion's mouth. Then Darius wrote unto all the people and nations and languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For He is the living God and steadfast forever and His kingdom that shall not be destroyed and His dominion shall be even to the end. He delivereth and rescueth. He worketh signs and wonders and and, and in heaven and earth who delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. You know why Darius didn't have a problem helping those Jews out? He had seen what God can do. He had seen a real Christian who didn't compromise in the world, who didn't compromise the sin. So I said, what's so great about this temple? In Ezra chapter number 9, what's so wonderful about it. Well, it would be renovated by a man named Herod and it would be the same foundation. It would be the same temple. And here's what Haggai said about that temple. The glory of this temple shall be greater than of the latter temple. That latter temple was that Solomon's temple where when they prayed, the thick cloud moved in and the priest couldn't minister because of the cloud. I mean, the presence of God moved into that temple and they began to worship. But Haggai said the glory of this house shall be greater than of the latter house. Somebody said, why was this house better than the last house? Because one day there walked into that temple a 12-year-old boy and he sat down among the doctors and the lawyers and they said, son, you sure know a lot. Who are you? Where are you from? He said, well, on my mama's side, I'm from Nazareth. But on my daddy's side, I'm from the glory world. Well, son, how old are you? He said, well, on my mama's side, I'm 12 years old. But on my daddy's side, I've just always 
been. Well, son, what is your occupation? Well, on my mama's side, I'm a carpenter. But on my daddy's side, I'm going to take two pieces of wood and three nails and build a bridge from earth to glory. Yes, the presence of God moved in Solomon's temple. Oh, but the person of Jesus Christ walked in unto Zerubbabel's temple and the glory of this house was greater than on the ladder. And Ezra's a praying and he's a thanking God. And he said, Lord, you had mercy. You extended to us. We don't deserve it. And I don't want to take God's mercy for granted. You've done so much for us, God. You've done all these things. You've extended mercy. You've worked out things that only you could have done. How many times in our life has God worked out things, showed us mercy in ways that only He could have, only for us to take the mercy of God for granted? And we go right back to our idolatry, our immorality, our insolence, our rebellion against God and His Word. After God has been so merciful. Hey man, I hope you're getting that. I covered a lot of ground in 30 minutes. And I'm about to die. I'm just telling you this morning. Losing 12 pounds ain't helped my preaching at all. But what I'm telling you this morning is He's merciful. And he does things that we don't deserve. I don't want to take that for granted. We should reflect on God's mercy. But as we said this morning, we ought to rejoice in God's mercy. I appreciate your attention. Let's stand together. Thank God that He is a merciful God.